I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Hey there, Parallax East listeners. On this edition of the program, we're going to be digging into the history of the early American Republic to understand the origins of an American institution, namely the President's Cabinet. How did it come to be under the first President of the United States, George Washington? Joining us to illuminate that history is... Dr. Lindsay M. Chervinsky, author of The Cabinet, George Washington, and the Creation of an American Institution. I want to get straight to the conversation, but first, a word from our sponsors, Joseph Matheny, the transmedia storyteller and alternate reality games pioneer, on his audio drama Zen. XEN, the Zen of the Other, and musician Rick Berlin, who wants to tell you about his new book, The Big Balloon, A Love Story. Words make the walls that trick us into complying with stasis. Zen. The Zen of the Other is a work that follows one man as he attempts to find his way through the jumble of modernity that envelops us all and threatens to strangle us in its tentacles longer than night. Call me Ezra. Names are not important. Cast into a world where the liminal overlaps the world of the paranormal philosophical speculation. Shadows, the void are all painted over. Magic of the deep dark night. Ezra Buckley, struggling to keep his head above water long enough to pluck a jewel of wisdom from the crown of a four spirit. The very act of writing down the story in static form, carved into clay and hardened, was in itself an act of black magic. In a world devoid of rites of passage, Ezra finds himself on his own as he is confronted with the very real prospect of having a life-changing liminal experience in the woods of Big Sur, if he can survive it. Back to zero, which for me, those days seemed like where the forces of nature wanted me to reside. Is it even real? Is it the legendary watchers of Big Sur phenomena or something else? Zen is a work that confronts the questions of identity, modernity, life, the other, and the place for rites of passage in the modern world. Where mystery reigns supreme. Zen. The Zen of the Other. The audio play. Available now on digital.panicmachine.com, Spotify, Deezer, Apple Music, and your favorite streaming service. I wrote The Big Balloon, a love story, a memoir collage during quarantine. My legs swelled up at the computer. I took pictures of objects in my house. Each image inspired a wormhole of chain-linked recall. It's funny, disturbing, and scary honest. The chapters are just rooms in my house. Ryan Walsh, author of Astral Weeks, A Secret History of 1968, said this. Berlin populates his writing with memories that will break your heart and wisdom tossed off as one-liners. Walk through his house, flip on the lights room by room, see what he has left there for you and all of us. All of my bands, Orchestra Luna through the Nickel and Dime Band, find a place here 
but there's a deeper cut into my non-musical queer life and those I've loved. Friends, family, portraits, and weird observations. Part Andy Rooney, part David Sedaris, part Proust. A stretch. You can read about it on my website, berlinrick.com. You can buy this beast of a book on Amazon, Bookshop, Barnes & Noble. Thank you. Welcome to Parallax Views, Dr. Lindsay M. Travinsky, presidential historian and author of the recent book, The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. So I want to start by delving into how you got into uh, looking at presidential history, because I, I think a lot of people... <laughs> I think they have the idea that, oh, history is about dusty books and it's it's not exciting, but it can be very exciting. I mean, I, I grew up reading um, Gore Vidal's Empire Cycle, and it, it taught me to love history uh, because I found that, you know, he had actually used real letters uh, to write these historical novels. And I think there is a lot more excitement in looking back at this history than people realize. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, you're obviously preaching to the choir uh, with me. I think that so many people, unfortunately, get their introduction to history through textbooks and having to memorize names and dates. And that can be really boring. I find it really boring and I do it for a living. And so I totally understand why people think that then history is dry and dusty. But the truth is, actually, there are these really incredible people and sometimes history, especially ends up producing storylines that are more ridiculous than anything you can possibly imagine in fiction. In terms of presidential history, the reason I got into that particular field is that I really like studying how people use power. I like studying how individuals can affect events and change and the world. And by, I mean, by far, the president is probably the most powerful position in the, in the world right now. And then, you know, basically it has been for quite some time. And in terms of my period of study, when the United States was first being shaped and the constitution was formed and there's this new government, the people who held office had so much ability to shape what happened because all of these things had to be decided for the first time. So I find that ability for people to leave their thumbprint on history pretty extraordinary. And in that regard, I was wondering if you could comment on when we're talking about the, the early days of the Republic, I think sometimes we can get too much into looking at the founding fathers as these sort of larger than life uh, or, or even at times almost canonized saint type figures. And I, I think that actually makes them it doesn't give them enough credit in some ways, because I think we miss that they have their their own foibles and failings, and they're, they're very human like us. Oh, yeah. The real version is way more interesting than some perfect human. And it's also way more productive because if we study people who were perfect and who knew everything, that's not particularly replicable. That's not something we can apply to today. But if we study extraordinary people, but, you know, flawed humans who did their best to overcome certain challenges and come up with new ideas in moments of crisis, that is something we could actually apply to our current moment. So I am 100% with you. I think we've done a disservice to treat the founding generation and especially the men that had framed the constitution as these, you know, semi-god-like figures. Not only did they not think of themselves that way, but it makes our own story much less productive. And they often argued with each other, as we will find out talking about the cabinet. And I guess that's where we should start is uh, what is the cabinet? Because this is not uh, an institution that the sort of founders had really envisioned initially, at least not in the way uh, that it's sort of come to be today. You're absolutely right. The, the founding generation, the framers, they argued with each other all the time, including over what the presidency should look like. And one of the elements of the presidency that they ultimately decided to reject, although not everyone agreed with this, was a cabinet. Um, and a cabinet came actually from the British tradition. So previously there had been a privy council that advised and helped the king govern the country in, in England and then in Great Britain. 
But as the Privy Council grew in size, it became unproductive as a governing body. Anyone who's been in a meeting with way too many people knows what it's like when you're trying to, you know, come to some sort of decision. And so the king started to pull off his favorite advisors into a small room off the Privy Council chambers. And that small room was called the king's cabinet. Back then, cabinet quite literally meant like a closet or, you know, a small space that was very private used for prayer or correspondence. So this group became known as the King's Cabinet Council, and then eventually council was dropped and it became known as the King's Cabinet. So this was language that was very much in the political lexicon, and the delegates to the Constitutional Convention explicitly rejected proposals for a cabinet because they felt like it undermined transparency and responsibility at the highest levels of government and would maybe lead the new government towards corruption and cronyism. So they very much rejected this proposal as something that they that was too British and too much like what they had tried to fight the war against. So then how does the cabinet form with regards to our first president, George Washington? Well, Washington was the president of the Constitutional Convention. He was there every single day. He did not miss a single session. So he had a very good sense of what the delegates expected of him. And he knew that they had rejected this this proposal. And instead, they had put a couple of options in place. The Senate was designed to be a council of foreign affairs. So the president was literally supposed to go meet with the Senate to discuss diplomacy. And the president could request written advice from the department secretaries. So Washington fully intended to use these options and went into office met with the Senate just a couple of months into his presidency, requested written advice, and he realized these options were way too cumbersome, they were way too inefficient, or frankly, the senators were annoying and wouldn't give him direct answers on questions. And so he basically tried to experiment with different options for a couple of years before ultimately creating a group, a group meeting, the cabinet, of his department secretaries to provide advice and support on really big issues that really touched on multiple different departments. Maybe we should get into, for people that don't know the whole history of the cabinet as an institution, what were the functions it was meant to serve and how has that maybe evolved in the present? Because you, you said earlier that it wasn't meant to be an institution like what, what you would have found in Britain at the time. So what was the purpose and how, how maybe did it differ? That's a great question. So Washington really pulled together these secretaries with two different goals in mind. The secretaries, their primary responsibility was to manage the executive departments. So the Department of State, the Department of Treasury, the Department of War, And then the attorney general did not have a Department of Justice at that time, but did have legal advisory responsibilities. So he generally met with them one-on-one when they had to discuss something that was just pertaining to their department. And that was what we sort of think about as their bureaucratic management responsibilities. The other part was to advise the president. And Washington would bring together the secretaries and the attorney general when there was a really big issue. So for example, the topic of the first cabinet meeting was the diplomatic and trade relationships between the United States and France, Great Britain, and Spain. So these are, you know, really big topics, really big questions, and they required the input of all of the people present. Now, that being said, Washington fully intended that the cabinet would serve his needs as president. So if he did not think that a cabinet meeting would be productive or he didn't want to meet with them, the secretaries did not have a institutional right to be in the room when he made that choice, unlike the British parliament, where it was really sort of a uh, leadership by consensus. So over time, sometimes Washington convened five meetings per week, and sometimes he didn't meet with the cabinet together as a group for months. And that left a tradition that presidents really get to decide how they're going to interact with their cabinets. Sometimes they're gonna meet weekly or all the time if it's productive. Sometimes they're gonna prefer advisors outside of the administration. And it's really up to the person in charge. 
So to a certain extent, that precedent has continued to guide the executive branch for the duration of the nation's history. Every president has had a cabinet, has met with it sometimes or sometimes a lot. So for example, Abraham Lincoln met with his cabinet at least once a week, sometimes several times a week in the middle of the war. Theodore Roosevelt held weekly meetings. Ulysses S. Grant held weekly meetings. Andrew Jackson at one point didn't talk to his cabinet for an entire year because they were in a fight and he didn't want to. And so, you know, it really depends on who's in office. Now, as the cabinet has grown over time, especially there was an explosion of executive departments in the 20th century, and there was the creation of the National Security Council, that relationship, those responsibilities have shifted, and we've seen a professionalization of the people who are generally in charge of the departments. So that bureaucratic management piece has become a little bit more important. But occasionally, a president will still have a really good relationship with one of the cabinet secretaries, like currently President Biden is very close to Secretary of State Tony Blinken. And that's kind of an old school cabinet relationship that definitely nods back to Washington. I I like that you mentioned Andrew Jackson there having issues with his cabinet because, you know, it's it's pretty well known that uh, Donald Trump fancies himself a, a fan of Andrew Jackson. And of course... Trump and his cabinet, there was a there was a high turnover rate. And I think it's interesting. We can see parallels from today uh, all the way to, uh, you know, the, the early days of the republic and the various presidents that have come since then. Yeah, it's a great it's a great observation. And I would argue that the parallels go beyond, you know, some of the they, they both had a great deal of turnover. They both had a great deal of cabinet scandal. Uh, most presidents generally try and avoid both of those things for understandable reasons. It detracts from their agenda. They lose some of the institutional knowledge. Things get slowed down. We have to bring someone new in and let them get up to speed. But both Trump and Jackson seem to embrace the chaos that came with a lot of turnover and a lot of cabinet scandal. Well, why would a figure like Jackson or Trump, and and then we'll get back to Washington. I know we're jumping around a bit, but why would they embrace that sort of chaos? Is there like a logic to that? Well, I'm not sure it's always necessarily intentional. From a historian point of view, it's clear to me that Jackson wanted to surround himself with people who were yes men, who didn't ever disagree. Um, There's some ego present, some sense of always being right present. I think probably those those parallels could be drawn pretty accurately. So partly it's a personality thing of that they didn't really care if there was scandal or turnover as long as they had people around them who were willing to do whatever they want. The second piece, and this is sort of where the analysis comes in, because I don't think that this is necessarily a planned strategy it makes the power in the executive branch, and I would say the power in the ruling party, much more centralized around one person and one personality. So it becomes much more a party of personality around that one one figurehead than it does a platform or a sort of party-wide agenda. Now, getting back to Washington and the origins of the cabinet, it's interesting. I think your book is surprisingly... I think one of the first to really deal with this in a lot of ways. I could, could you talk a little bit about that? Because it seems like there's a, a big gap in our historical knowledge at times. Yeah, you're right. I think a lot of times people think, well, this, this event, these people happened so long ago. Surely it's been discussed. Surely it's been written about. There's nothing new to say. And that's wrong for a couple of reasons. First, we are still finding new documents. Things are in people's attics that they don't know are there or they're in private collections and then they become public. So there's still new information that's coming out. Second, a lot of the early history, the stuff that was written in the 19th century is frankly really, really bad because it's not written with the same standards that we expect good history books to be written today. It's very fawning. It's very much glorifies the figures like we talked about. And so it's not actually a productive history. And finally, I think because the original secretaries were in office, basically from the beginning of Washington's administration. So people like Thomas Jefferson, Alexander Hamilton, Henry Knox, names that maybe ring a bell for listeners. People just assume that the cabinet was always there and it was always there from day one. And that's very much not the case. So I think that there's this 
discovery and this realization that I had as I was doing this research that the last book that was actually published on this subject was in 1912 and is no longer in print. And so most books since then have focused on more recent cabinets or 20th century cabinets. And so when I realized that, I then spent the next many years hoping no one would beat me to the subject. So you mentioned a few names there. Uh, I want to look at Washington's original cabinet, the, the original four members. So you have Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson. You have Secretary of Treasury Alexander Hamilton, Secretary of War Henry Knox, and Attorney General Edmund Randolph. Now, I think people know Jefferson and Hamilton on some level, but I, I really want to dig deep into who Secretary of War Knox and Attorney General Randolph were. I, I, would you like to start with Knox or Randolph? Let's start with Knox. Um, Knox and, well, both of them are so important and underrated in history books, and they were important to Washington. And thus, I think that we should, you know, really take them seriously because he wanted their input, he wanted their advice, and therefore I think it really matters. So Henry Knox was a was born to sort of a middling family in Boston. His dad left when he was really young. He became a bookseller and was self-educated. He then became a general in the Continental Army and ended up becoming the lead general of artillery under Washington's command. He was one of Washington's favorite generals. They served together for all eight years. They were incredibly close. Knox named one of his children after Washington, and he was the Secretary of War during the Confederation Congress. So when Washington came into office and was planning to select people for the positions, he had a couple of uh, qualifications that he wanted to make sure each person had. So first, they had to be knowledgeable and experienced about something that Washington was not. They had to bring in other knowledge and expertise to the administration. They had to represent different parts of the country, different cultural, factional, educational, religious, economic interests, such that Washington was basically bringing the different parts of the American experience into his administration. And finally, Washington had to know them and trust them, which makes sense, because if you're going to take someone's advice, you want to generally trust that the advice will be solid. So Knox was probably one of Washington's easiest choices. They had been super close. He was currently the acting secretary of war, so he could provide some continuity and institutional knowledge and served really with, I think, incredible valor for a very long time. The reason we forget him is, I think, twofold. First, Thomas Jefferson sort of dismissed Knox as Hamilton's toady, said that, you know, Knox had no original ideas and just went along with whatever Hamilton said, totally dismissing the fact that the experiences that shaped Hamilton's thinking, the serving in the military, seeing the failures of the Confederation Congress, Knox had those times like two. He had been in the army twice as long as Hamilton did and had seen the same things and so maybe had come to similar conclusions based on his own insight. Second, he ended up retiring at the end of 1794 and he had been gone during the Whiskey Rebellion, which was a big moment in Washington's administration. And Washington didn't really forgive him for that, kind of held that against him. Uh, we can talk a little bit more about why if you want, but basically I think Knox was really tired and had been away from home for 20 years, had been in public service for 20 years, and maybe didn't acquit himself with sort of the best and most committed of public service. And Washington and his relationship never really recovered. Could you delve into that a little bit more? I know you, it sounded like you had more to say on that. Yeah. So what happened in 1794, there were a series of rebels um, out in Western Pennsylvania, and they had been peacefully protesting a excise tax for a while. And then those protests turned violent and the administration decided upon a course of action. They sent out a peace delegation to negotiate. And then when that failed, sent out the militias from several states under federal command to crush the rebellion. When the militias were getting ready to go, Knox's estate in Maine was on the verge of bankruptcy. And so he asked Washington permission to go home and sort out his affairs. 
Washington reluctantly gave that permission. He really wanted Knox to be present when the troops were going out, because of course he was the Secretary of War. But he did reluctantly give the permission. And Knox went up to Maine, resolved things quickly, and then dawdled for six weeks. And we don't really know why. Again, I think it was really that he hadn't he hadn't been home in 20 years. And so I think he was just, you know, really ready to retire. By the time he came back to Philadelphia, which is where the the head of the federal government was at the time, Washington had already had to march out with the militia. And so Knox and Washington missed each other. And Washington wrote him this letter, which is incredibly sad. And it basically said, like, I wish you were with me. I wanted you with me for this moment. And so to me, that's the biggest evidence that Knox was really important to the cabinet and really important to Washington. And um, as I said, once Washington returned, Knox ended up retiring just a couple of months later, but their relationship definitely was never as close after that moment that it had been before. Since we're talking about rebellions, uh, could we talk a little bit more about one of my favorite chapters in the early Republic, um, the the Whiskey Rebellion? And I, I mean, it's a really pivotal moment, but I think a lot of people may overlook it. I mean, not not necessarily historians, but I mean, maybe the general public at times. I, I don't remember it being covered much when I was in uh, school, and it's a very interesting period in history. It is. So after the revolution, the federal government was essentially broke and had all of these debts that it had to repay both to private debtors, but also to foreign governments that had given Congress loans with which to fight the war. So they came up with a couple of ways to raise money because there was no such thing as an income tax at that point. And there was an excise tax on whiskey distilleries. This tax made sense because it didn't have to be you know, um, directly collected. It wasn't on every single person. It wasn't unnecessarily burdensome on lower classes or the wealthy. So politically, it should have been fine, except that in Western regions of places like Pennsylvania, Virginia, North Carolina, Kentucky, it was really hard for farmers to ship grain and corn to Eastern ports like Philadelphia and Charleston. And so what they often did was distill their extra grain into alcohol, which they could then use to barter or sell, or that was much cheaper and much more shelf stable for shipment. So they felt that the tax was really unfairly hitting those regions. And they protested, as I said, mostly um, peacefully for the first couple of years. And those protests turned violent in Pennsylvania in the summer of 1794, when a group of rebels actually led by a former Revolutionary War veteran burned down the house of a tax collector. Now for Washington and Hamilton, who was sort of the brains behind this tax, the problem with that was that their big complaint during the revolution was that parliament was allowed to set taxes without any representation from the colonies. The tax that was passed in 1791 had been passed by Congress. The regions in the West had representation in that Congress and the constitution gave Congress the right to pass taxes. So all of the constitutional boxes had been checked. So the federal government had this right to pass this tax. And if they gave in, if they allowed this rebellion to happen and the taxes to go uncollected, that would establish a principle that the federal government didn't have that right or it could be challenged. And so when Washington and Hamilton and the cabinet ultimately decided to send out armed forces to combat this rebellion, the rebels quickly fled and they tried to round up as many as possible. And most of the cases were actually dismissed due to lack of evidence. And the people who were convicted, Washington actually pardoned the next year because it was less about you know, inflicting justice or, or punishing people and more about proving that this principle did exist and the federal government had the right to, and the citizens had a constitutionally appropriate means for objecting to that tax through their own representatives. Yeah, and that's so wild how there were, you know, literal Revolutionary War veterans like um, James McFarlane who were, you know, leading these rebellions. So I guess... With regards to the Whiskey Rebellion story, it lasts from uh, 1791 till 1794. How do they end up suppressing that? And, and what 
what are the what's the sort of nitty gritty details of that story? Yeah, so they the federal government actually handled it a little bit differently depending on what state we're talking about. So Kentucky was a relatively new state. It had only recently come into the union and citizens in Kentucky basically pretended like the bill didn't exist. They basically pretended like the tax <laughs> had never been passed. They refused to appoint collectors. They refused to appoint the people to go around and take the documentation. They refused to appoint attorneys to bring forth the cases. They refused to call juries. I mean, like literally Hamilton could not get them to acknowledge that it existed. And he tried. He at various points offered forgiveness for the last several years. So basically saying like, it's fine that you haven't paid for the last two years. Let's start from scratch and go forward. And they were like, nope. And they just continued to pretend it didn't happen. North Carolina was sort of in the middle. They kind of appointed people, but those people were often threatened by distilleries. And, you know, my favorite threat was that one distiller threatened to grind the nose off of the collector on his millstone. So, you know, using the tools at hand, I don't think he actually did, but it was a very colorful threat. And then Pennsylvania, of course, was where the federal government really came to bear. And I think that a lot of that is symbolic. Pennsylvania is, of course, where Congress was seated. It was right based. I mean, you know, it wasn't right in Washington's backyard. There were several hundred miles, but it was the state where Washington was currently the president. It was where the Declaration of Independence had been written, you know, so there's a lot of emotional significance. Places like Kentucky, they had a, a much looser emotional bond to the new nation. And a lot of the British and Spanish and French empire forces out West were kind of making offers to Kentucky being like, Hey, if you want to, you know, change your mind and not be a part of the union, we'd be happy to take you back into the empire. And so the federal government really didn't want to push them away, whereas Pennsylvania wasn't going anywhere. So it was an, it was an opportunity to really sort of set the principle there. Now, the reason Washington was able to actually call up the militia was because Congress had passed a bill that allowed the president, if Congress was no longer, was not in session, it was on their summer break, basically, and there was a international invasion or a domestic rebellion, the president could put evidence of this rebellion in front of a Supreme Court justice. And if the Supreme Court justice approved that military force was required, then the president could call up the militias, which is the exact process that the cabinet in Washington used. And they, of course, selected a Supreme Court justice who was most likely to rule in their favor. So the Supreme Court has been political from day one. Um, and so they, they put the, the evidence for Justice James Wilson approved this decision. Washington got the militias ready to go and sent out a peace commission while they were being prepared to demonstrate that all diplomatic solutions had been considered. And then once that peace commission failed, sent out the militias to crush the rebellion. I, I want to get into Randolph, uh, but, but first, I think it's important. I think there's times when people look at the early republic if they don't know much about it. And I think they'd be shocked that, you know, th this is a really tumultuous time, right? I mean, there's... I mean, it's not like the loyalists to the British just went away. I mean, this was a time of, of, of violence and rebellions. And th there was a lot that needed to be done to sort of, uh, you know, keep the project together. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. One of the things that I do hope people take away from the book, The Cabinet, is just how tense this entire period was. As you pointed out, there were constant threats of violence there was a lot of internal division. By the time Washington came into office as president, the first government had already failed. So the Confederation Congress had been had proven so ineffective that it had essentially failed. And most republics, most governments, but most republics especially, don't get second chances. Usually they devolve into civil war or anarchy or you know, dictatorship. And so there was a real sense that any mistake, any wrong step would lead to the collapse of the union and and that second chance would be for naught and that is a ton of pressure on every single choice especially for someone like Washington who every single choice is establishing precedent that's huge and Washington knew it so when he went to 
his first inauguration, he wrote to Knox that he felt like he was a prisoner going to the place of execution because it was so incredibly stressful at any given moment. And the European empires were very much rooting for the United States to fail and to splinter into different groups. There were a lot of different people who had different ideas about what should be done. So it is, we, you know, from the benefit of hindsight, we know that it worked. They did not know that. So then we, we finally built up to it. Attorney General Edmund Randolph, I said we would talk about him because he's another figure that I think, uh, like Knox, people may not hear as much about. They hear about Jefferson and, and Hamilton. So who was Attorney General Edmund Randolph? So Edmund Randolph came from Virginia. He, the Randolph family had many different lines and were sort of all interrelated. So he was a distant cousin of Jefferson. He was the nephew, I believe, of Peyton Randolph, who had been the leader of the Virginia House of Burgesses during the revolution. He was an attorney, obviously, and he had actually served as one of Washington's very first aides to comp during the revolution. So they had a very close personal relationship. Once he went back to Virginia, he held pretty much every state office that you can hold from state attorney general to state governor. And while doing so also served as Washington's private attorney. So often represented Washington in legal matters. They were very close friends, probably one of Washington's closest friends. And he was widely recognized as a brilliant legal mind. So he was a really good choice for the first attorney general. Now, the reason we don't remember him is, again, sort of twofold. The first is that Thomas Jefferson expected that Randolph would side with him on pretty much any disagreement. So if Hamilton and Knox were on one side, Jefferson expected that he would be on the other side. And Randolph really saw himself as a a nonpartisan figure. He wanted to often come up with a compromise option. He regularly found himself sort of in the middle And Jefferson thought he was being wishy-washy. And so he actually, one of my favorite letters, he wrote to James Monroe and said that cabinet deliberations often broke down two and a half votes to one and a half votes, indicating that Randolph couldn't really make up his mind. In reality, I think that Jefferson was just annoyed that, you know, Randolph didn't always agree with him. So because Jefferson lived longer than a lot of these people and went on to have such a successful career, his interpretation and managed his papers and preserved them so well, his interpretation of people like Randolph and Knox has sort of become the de facto historical argument. So I try and push back on that. The second reason, after he served as attorney general, once Thomas Jefferson retired at the end of 1793, Washington then promoted him to be secretary of state. And he was an essential secretary of state because as some of the other original people left the cabinet, he became Washington's closest and most important advisor until in the summer of 1795, Oliver Wolcott Jr., who was the new secretary of treasury, and Timothy Pickering, who was the new secretary of war, accused him of selling state secrets to France. I don't think he actually did. It's hard to say because a lot of these documents, you know, either are convoluted or don't exist. What I think happened is he said to the French minister in 1794, if you were to fund the whiskey rebels, which we talked about, you would change the course of U.S. history, which you can imagine if someone has a very poor French translation, how that might come across as, you know, for a certain amount of money, you can change things. And it kind of sounds like a bribe. So Pickering received this letter. It was uh, captured by the British. (laughs) So there are a lot of different players here. It was captured by the British. It was handed off to Pickering. Pickering didn't like Randolph because he had Washington's ear and he was not a dedicated Federalist, which Pickering was. And this was an opportunity to get rid of him. He translated it for Washington because Washington did not speak or read French. And Washington basically accused Randolph of doing this. Randolph was so shocked that his close friend of all of these decades would accuse him of this in this way in a very sort of public cabinet forum that he resigned in a huff and then tried to clear his name later. It it didn't really work. I mean, it kind of worked. He went on to have a very 
successful and lucrative legal career in Virginia, but he never again reclaimed the national prominence and he and Washington were no longer friends. What was the role of public approval in the original cabinet? Because that seems like it was a critical component from what I've read of your work. And is that public approval still vital today? Yeah, it's a great question. So as this government was forming, because there weren't really any precedents for the new federal government. I mean, people were pulling on their previous experiences in the state, um, the state councils and the state governments, but you know, they were creating things from scratch and they were doing the very best that they could, but often they wanted to make sure that they had public support behind those decisions because anytime you know you create something new, whether it's a group or an institution or um, you know anything, you need to have public buy-in to ensure that it continues past those first individuals. And the first federal office holders really felt no different. They really wanted to make sure the American public approved of their choices and would continue to support this new republic. Now they didn't have polling like we do today. Instead, they had access to a number of different types of publications. So there were newspapers and editorials, there were broadsides, but perhaps the most important channel for information were these private letter networks, where, which they all cultivated, they all had their own networks, where they would send letters to friends and family members, and they would be shared widely among their friends and family members, and then they would sort of send news and information back. And it was a way for people like Washington and Jefferson and Hamilton to get a sense of what leading citizens in their state or in their network thought of what was happening. And it was kind of the best way to do public polling before that kind of thing existed. Now, in terms of the cabinet and public approval today, if a cabinet is working well, if a cabinet is functioning as it should, most of the time the public ignores them and their successes appear to be presidential successes and they kind of blend into the background. And so they don't really have much of a public approval or disapproval. When things are going poorly, when the cabinet has a lot of scandal or a lot of turnover or discord between cabinet members or between cabinet members and the White House staff, then all of a sudden the public does take notice. And the public doesn't really like disapprove of the cabinet per se, but tends to transfer that disapproval onto the president. So both the successes and failures very much reflect on the person in charge. And could you talk a little bit about the the feud between uh, Hamilton and Jefferson? Absolutely. So Hamilton and Jefferson basically disagreed about everything from the very beginning. Um, (laughs) They initially respected one another. They didn't know each other all that well, Um, but they respected one another. They had had incredibly different upbringings and childhoods. So Hamilton, you know, was born to an unwed mother who died young. He sort of pulled himself up by his bootstraps with the assistance of some some donors and patrons and really had to make his own way, had to fight for everything that he had, went on to serve in the military. So he had a very militaristic version of what it meant to serve and a very militaristic version of masculinity. He had then sort of made his home in New York City and cozied up to the merchant elite. So he thought that trade and industry was really important. Urban centers were the future of the nation. And so naturally the perfect ally would be Great Britain as the United States biggest trading partner. Jefferson was born quite literally with a silver spoon in his mouth. He knew that he would inherit land. He would inherit property, including enslaved individuals. He knew that he would likely then be elected to public service because he was a leading figure in his area. Um, he certainly worked hard at his legal education, but he never had to struggle for his next place in the way that Hamilton did. During the war, he served in the legislatures, and then he was governor. He never served in the military, and then he went to Paris for several years and served abroad as a diplomat. He was serving his nation, but he was abroad during the Confederate, the end of the war and the Confederation period. So for Jefferson, when he was doing his work, if things came to blows or, you know, shouting, then then that meant that something was wrong, that diplomacy had failed. He was used to places that were, you know, like Versailles in the court of St. James, where you're facilitating conversation with fine wine and dining and music. And so it's a very different environment and a very different, again, version of masculinity. 
So they come into the cabinet. Oh, I should also mention, he thought that human farmers were sort of the ideal American and that France, who had been the ally of the United States during the revolution, was the ideal partner because they shared revolutionary ideology. They come into the cabinet and Washington intentionally selected people with different ideas. He was intentionally trying to bring together different perspectives and Washington did not mind when they fought because he felt that that discourse was actually really productive. He could see the holes in each other's arguments. He could see where the weaknesses or the strengths were and it allowed him to feel like he really had all sides of a, a conundrum covered. Because they were together in the cabinet, Hamilton and Jefferson became convinced that the other was a mortal threat. As I said, they, they already disagreed about everything. They were already going to disagree about everything. And I think that political parties were inevitable. However, because they were together all the time, they felt increasing urgency to start to craft those political structures and to do something to counter the influence they saw of the other person. So I think it sped up the process and it heated up the process that would have maybe happened either way, but it happened faster and hotter because they were in the same room all the time. This is a, a bigger picture question in regards to the cabinet as an institution, but I'm assuming there's been cases throughout history where the way the cabinet has operated as an institution, maybe there's something that people find corrupted about it or in need of reform. So for instance, I'm thinking about how uh, in 1967, we got the federal anti-nepotism statue um, to deal with this issue of nepotism, uh, including uh, those in, in the cabinet that may have benefited from uh, nepotistic privilege. Could you speak to a little of that? Issues like nepotism and, and reforms of the cabinet as an institution over time. So anyone you know can really observe that the cabinet has evolved over time. There are many more departments. The National Security Council exists and has taken over some of the responsibilities. And as those things have shifted and emerged, there has been there have been a series of statutory statutory reforms and congressional legislation that has been passed to try and manage some of these things. But it's often very reactionary and takes a very long time to get that reform passed. So for example, Dwight D. Eisenhower actually created several new departments and then Congress passed a bill saying only Congress could create new departments. So the president can create cabinet level positions like a you know climate change czar or decide whether or not the CIA is going to be a cabinet level position or not. But only Congress can create a new uh, department from scratch. That's one reform. As you said, the anti-nepotism statute is an important one and also applies in some ways to Congress. And so that was really viewed as a target towards Robert Kennedy. He was uh, John F. Kennedy's brother and he was Kennedy's attorney general. Now, what's interesting about the anti-nepotism statute is does not apply to White House staff. It applies to executive branch staff, but the actual people who work in the White House, it does not apply to. So that's why people like Ivanka and Jared Kushner could actually have positions in the White House because those nepotism rules do not apply. I am in favor of them applying, not from a partisan standpoint, but I generally think that family members shouldn't have that sort of access because people who have a lot of experience and expertise in those fields should be the one advising the president. And there's nothing that stops the president from picking up the phone and talking to his family member. But by having family members in those positions, it takes away that spot from someone else. So some other reforms I think would be totally appropriate. There is a bill that talks about um, the role of acting secretaries. Uh, this was a, a challenge in the previous administration when the Department of Homeland Security secretary position was vacant for over 500 days. Under statutory law, uh, a president is supposed to put forth a new nominee within 210 days for the Senate to confirm. And that's really important because the, the point of the Senate confirmation is to ensure that someone who has the experience has the knowledge, but is also trusted and respected enough to manage that department is the one actually managing that department. The problem with that statute is that it's kind of toothless 
and doesn't have any good enforcement mechanisms. So I, I think some reform would be appropriate there so that acting secretaries can't just continue in office indefinitely. So there are a lot of areas for reform. I think one other example, it's not unusual for new departments to go to undergo some shifting and, and change after they've been in place for two decades or so. So for example, the Department of Commerce and Labor was created under Theodore Roosevelt and then was actually split, recognizing that those two things were really large and maybe actually needed two different perspectives. The Department of Homeland Security is now about 20 years old. It wouldn't surprise me if there's some reform that would be appropriate for that department because it does have such a mishmash of different responsibilities that maybe some things are better served. Like for example, maybe the Coast Guard should actually be under the Department of Defense as opposed to the Department of Homeland Security. So reform like that is pretty common once things have been around for a while and people can kind of work out some of the kinks. So there were just two more things I wanted to cover and we're gonna get into some uh, Trump issues right at the end. Uh, But before we get to that, You have a forthcoming book, An Honest Man, The Inimitable Presidency of John Adams. And I'm assuming that's going to cover a lot of his cabinet as well, because that's part of his story. Uh, And it got me to thinking about, you know, we've had so many interesting presidents uh, and everyone has their their favorite. You know, I'm a big fan of uh, John Quincy Adams. and There's a, a favorite for everyone. Right. But who do you think had some of the most interesting and dynamic cabinets, uh, or even who, who had the most scandal-laden ones? Sure. So I think it's really important to draw a distinction between the best and most effective cabinets and the most interesting, because those are often not the same thing. Same, same with presidents. I think that John Quincy Adams is probably one of the most interesting presidents, but probably not one of the best, although I do think his presidency is underrated. So in terms of interest, I think that uh, Theodore Roosevelt had a really fascinating cabinet, partly because he is so fascinating that his interactions with department secretaries are just really amusing. So for example, because he was so invested personally in the Navy and had been the assistant secretary of the Navy, he could not help himself and he meddled in everything, including like trying to dictate the length of the spurs that the cavalry would wear. So he could not keep a secretary of Navy in office and went through six, which is ridiculous. Um, FDR had a phenomenally interesting cabinet, especially because he had a very large shift once he started, once the war began, he brought in a lot of Republicans to war positions to have a unified bipartisan administration. And they agreed on no social policy, on no economic policy, but they agreed on how to fight the war. And so those interactions are fascinating. In terms of scandal, um, we've already discussed Jackson. Jackson is always up there. Uh, Harding is a, was sort of the high watermark for scandal until Nixon came along. Um, Harding's, Harding had the, had the very bad misfortune of having a lot of good friends with very poor morals, and he just trusted them and, and delegated authority and then was very slow to pull them from office. Of course, Nixon uh, and Watergate The other one that I would say that was pretty scandalous that sometimes gets overshadowed is John F. Kennedy. Because of the sort of very sad and tragic way that he died, we don't necessarily dig into a lot of the really nasty interpersonal um, relationships in the cabinet. There was a lot of backbiting and, and backstabbing and attempts to sort of diminish the power of different factions. And so that was a pretty scandalous cabinet too. What is one example of that with the Kennedy presidency that stands out for you personally? Um, Well, they could never agree over who actually wrote a speech. So he had, you know, personal aides and he had uh, assistants and he had secretaries and then he had cabinet secretaries and then he had his sort of kitchen cabinet of advisors. And they were all squabbling over who actually wrote the material or who was responsible for a decision. So they literally could not ever agree. Yeah, there's just there's so many interesting stories when it comes to various presidents. And you're right, the, the most interesting ones are not always- uh, <laughs> No, you know, they're not. <laughs> the, the best presidencies, the best cabinets. So then with regards to Donald Trump, you recently wrote a piece for, I believe, NBC News about Trump ripping up White House docs 
shows that little what little respect he had for the presidency. Uh, what is going on here? He's he's ripping up White House documents as his time in, in the office uh, dwindled. What, what What's the story? Yeah, so a little bit of back in, backstory information is, I think, important. There is a law called the Presidential Records Act that was first passed in 1978. And it established that all presidential records belong to the American people through the trust of the National Archives. Prior to that point, presidential records had basically been private property, and the president managed them as he or, well, as he saw fit, hopefully someday she. Um, so this bill is, is really important because it's designed to do a couple of things. First, you want to have the records for the next government so that there can be a transition so that the next, because we have so much turnover when, when new people come into office, you need to have a paper record to make sure that people like the National Security Advisor or the Secretary of Defense know what decisions had been made, know what's going on. That information is really essential. Second, because the American people are privy to so little of the daily comings and goings of the presidency, because secrecy and you know classified information is really important, we don't actually really get to hold a president accountable for the, that day-to-day stuff. We tend to vote on some of the bigger issues. So in order to have accountability and transparency, that actually usually doesn't happen until later when scholars and journalists and history books are being written. History is the ultimate way to hold a president, president accountable and to have that transparency. So if you destroy the records, you are undermining any attempt at accountability and transparency. And it turns out, as this um, reporting continues to unfold, that former President Trump destroyed records for the duration of his presidency, despite several warnings from the archivists, both to him directly and then also to his White House counsel office. Uh, New reporting has suggested that he often would flush them down the toilet And his staff would put the torn up documents in burn bags, which were, of course, then incinerated. So they're quite literally destroyed. He also took at least 15 boxes of documents back to Mar-a-Lago and reporting, I think that broke last night, said that um, those boxes contained classified information. So all of these actions are against the terms or are, you know, um, are breaking the terms of this statute no president has ever been convicted under this law. So it's not totally clear whether or not someone would be. However, the National Archives this week have asked the Department of Justice to look into this criminal misbehavior, indicating a pretty significant next step. But, you know, initially it was, I think, a funny story about staff having to tape up documents to send to the National Archives. As it has developed, I think people are really starting to see that it's much more important for national security and about, you know, the president is not above the law and no one person has the right to avoid that sort of accountability. Yeah. I mean, that, it's, it's a wild story to me. And I mean, is there any way, I mean, it's, it's not like there's a, a clear enforcement arm for this, is there? Well, there's no penalty that is specified in the Presidential Records Act. However, there are a number of other legal codes that offer very clear penalties for uh, destruction of government documents or government property. So it's quite, I mean, I should say, I am not a lawyer, I'm not offering legal advice, Um, but there are, I think, a number of other statutes and codes that could be applied in this situation. And other former government officials have been held accountable under those codes for taking classified information out of the archives or destroying classified information. So including being barred from holding office again. So it is a very much a relevant question and my guesses will be in the news for a while. So the last thing I wanted to ask you about was when you research for these books, I I, I always find the research process interesting. I have a lot of um, journalist friends who uh, are constantly doing Freedom of Information Act requests. And that may be a different thing entirely, but it's, it's interesting because you really have to know your way around and you have to know how to navigate in order to do good research. So I was wondering if you could talk about what it takes to research uh, these topics related to presidential history and digging through the documents. 
so I start my process by trying to read everything I can that's already been written on the subject, having a a good sense of what other scholars have said. And the general arc of the storyline is a really great starting point. And then I dive into what we call the primary sources or the sources created by people at the time. And some of those are online and some of those are on microfilm, uh, lots of newspapers, lots of letters, things like that. I think it really takes, and, and your, your friends who do the FOIA requests are absolute heroes because the FOIA process is miserable. Um, I think it just takes a really burning sense of curiosity and a willingness to, even if it's a small question. So for example, I was trying to figure out the other day what color carpet was on the floor in the Senate chambers in Congress Hall in 1797 when John Adams was inaugurated. It's a very small detail, but I wanted to include it. And so I spent a great deal of time looking for the answer to that question. So I think it just requires an ability to be curious. One might say nosy, um, but they're dead, so they don't care. It's fine. Um, And, you know, just kind of a persistent need to know the answer to things. And then, you know, at some point, sometimes you you can't know the answer and that's just how it goes. But just kind of a, a constant sense of wanting to know what happened, wanting to know why it happened, who was there, what it looked like. What was the thought process, things like that. And then I start writing as I am researching, because what I know from my own process is as I'm writing the story, there will be questions or details like that one that I don't think to research ahead of time that I know will come up. So it doesn't make sense for me to try and finish my research before writing, because there's always going to be more. So I write as I'm going, and then I put in lots of notes about, oh, you know, need to look for this detail, need to look for this explanation. Um, and then rewrite and polish and have other people read it and feedback. Feedback is such an important part of the process because it makes you better. So in closing, what do you think the future of this institution, the cabinet, is going to look like? Or, or I, I guess that's a little bit speculative. You're a historian. I don't want to like put you on the spot and make We're you speculate. We're really bad at predicting history <laughs> or predicting but, the future. But what, what, is, what are the possible changes we could see or what what are the possibilities for the future of this institution? I think that as the federal government, you know, continues to expand and has so many responsibilities on its plate, the most likely reform that I see happening is the cabinet fractures into multiple different cabinets. So you have a, a national security cabinet, you have a maybe a climate and energy cabinet, you have a domestic policy cabinet or like an education, you know, cabinet, things like that. I think it would make, it still makes sense to bring multiple people together for conversations, but you can't have quite so many people with so many different portfolios. So my guess is that sort of group structure will be continue, will continue to evolve and be important to presidents because that will actually provide the most useful feedback. I think it's interesting too, because I think we live in a time where we see that a lot of areas of expertise are beginning to have to overlap with other areas of expertise. So you mentioned national security. Uh, I Mm -hmm. think there's a lot of overlap now between climate change and national security. So you have all kinds of, uh, I think, curveballs going on. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, you know, I think the climate change one is the best example of things that touch on a lot of different aspects of American life. And so it wouldn't surprise me if there was a climate change working group and it included people like the national security advisor and the secretary of defense and the secretary of the interior, because they are of course dealing with domestic policy. So I think that that probably makes sense as a future direction. And what do you hope my listeners get out of this conversation? And if they pick up the book, what do you hope they get out of the book? I think one of the things that I I hope people most takeaway from, from this conversation and, and from the book is that the people who were creating the constitution and then creating these first offices and filling these first offices were very real. They were very human. They were brilliant and very successful and accomplished, but they were, you know, flawed humans and they were doing the very best that they could, but they were responding in real time to challenges that they didn't foresee coming necessarily, or they couldn't do anything to prevent. And so the evolution of the federal government is such an organic process starting in 1789 and continues to evolve. It is very much a fluid story. And anyone trying to tell you that it was, you know, set in stone really hasn't picked up a history book.
Well, hey, Lindsay Trevinsky, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. Uh, listeners can pick up the book uh, wherever uh, their favorite bookseller is. Support the independent booksellers is what I tell people. And yes. uh, it was great having you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. This was a great conversation. I really appreciate it. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Lindsay M. Trevinsky, presidential historian and author of The Cabinet, George Washington, and the creation of an American institution. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. There's everything from a $1 tier to a $100 tier with a $5, $10, and $15 tier in between. At the $10 tier and above, of course, you get a producer's credit shoutout. So, producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warnerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Fabian, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, and the Mirror Framework. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, please consider joining those listeners in supporting me at the $10 tier or above at my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One last time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say, don't do it. Just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing this like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff. It's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.